Well, today we have two segments on Practical Prepping Podcast. The first is an interview with Dr. Arthur T. Bradley as we explore the truth about CME and EMP. The second segment is a Medical Monday segment regarding medicines we need to be prepping. Stay with us. Welcome to Practical Prepping. Today is January 22nd, 2024, and this is episode 448. This is the prepping podcast with no bunkers, no zombies, and no alien invasions. Just practical prepping, where we believe that stuff happens, so we need to stay prepared, and we're here to help you get prepared. I'm Krista. And I'm Mark. If you'd like the expanded notes for this episode, go to Practical Prepping dot info forward slash four four eight and if you aren't receiving the practical prepping newsletter go to practical prepping dot info click on free pdf and you'll receive the free getting started in prepping pdf and you'll be added to the newsletter now for our item of the day on our featured page we're going to add one of Dr. Bradley's books that is on family prepping and includes a full chapter on EMP. We're also going to include the Siemens FS-140, which Dr. Bradley recommends and uses on his house for whole house protection. Hey, big announcement. We have started a private group on Facebook for Practical Prepping. This is a place where we can interact with you and we invite you to join. And you can do so on our website at practicalprepping.info and we're going to put a link in the show notes. We'd love to have you in the private group. We've already met some folks from all over the world that are sharing some pretty fantastic things. And there will be some interviews in the future from some of these really awesome folks. So join us on the private group on Facebook. Now let's get to the interview with Dr. Arthur T. Bradley. Recently, we had the rare privilege of interviewing one of the world's leading authorities on EMPs and CMEs. That stands for electromagnetic pulse and coronal mass ejection. Dr. Arthur T. Bradley is a fascinating individual, uh, received a Ph.D. in electrical engineering from Auburn University right here in the great state of Alabama. Currently works for NASA. He's headquartered out of Virginia. He is considered an EMP and CME expert and has written four books specifically addressing those issues and an additional 12 books in a survivalist series. He shares a lot of his personal experience and knowledge and research regarding EMPs and CMEs because there's so much debate and questions out there, and we're eager to get right into the interview, so stick with us. Dr. Bradley begins by explaining the differences between a CME and an EMP. A CME is a solar event. Um, The sun basically emits a large blob of plasma, which is just a charged gas that emits from the sun, kind of burps out from the sun, travels through space, and then eventually either washes over the earth or goes off somewhere into deeper space. That charged plasma has a way of perturbating our magnetic field lines of the earth, and you end up with currents flowing at the surface of the earth that can cause problems to, especially things with very long conductors like power lines or long data lines. So coronal mass ejection, their primary threat to the earth is that they will take down the power grid. 
they don't really hurt small scale electronics unless the electronics are plugged in at the time. And so the energy could come in through the power cord. And EMP is very different. Uh, when they talk about an EMP, they're really talking about a nuclear generated electromagnetic pulse, which is you send a warhead high up into the atmosphere, think a few hundred miles up there, detonate the warhead, and it creates a very powerful electromagnetic disturbance that comes down onto the Earth. And again, because of the magnetic field lines, you end up with some perturbation of things and that causes current to flow. And it has various effects. It's not just long conductors that get affected. It's also smaller conductors that can be affected. So things like cell phones and cars and other things can also suffer damage from electromagnetic pulse. One of them is intentional. Uh, it's a weapon. Uh, we have the ability to do it. So does Russia, so does others, China, for example. And then the other is just sort of a, a fact of nature that occurs every maybe 150 years or so. We end up with a big CME that hits the Earth. Since a coronal mass ejection comes from the sun, how easy is that for us to detect? And is there any way that we can protect ourselves? You get usually a couple of days notice from the sun because they have to travel through space. And we have satellites sitting right near the sun that watch these things. You see all the beautiful pictures and stuff that you can find on the web now. So it's not that we don't know they're coming. CMEs can't really sneak up on us. The difficulty is we don't know what they're going to do. And they've done everything. Men, we're a pretty new modernized society, right? And CMEs are, the big ones are about every 150 years. And so 150 years ago, we weren't very modernized. We had a big event back then. Everybody knows about called the Carrington event, right? And that event caused a lot of energy to flow in, let's say, telegraph wires. And it caused some fires and some other damage. That same event, if it happened today, might well take out the power grid across much of the world. How long it would take it down for is open to debate. Some people say it could be a year. Some people say it could be weeks. But either way, it would be a significant event. It would cost huge amounts of money to repair and it would take a, a lot of hardship on our people. So we do see them coming. But as I said, the difficulty is you don't know what they're going to do to you, even with our best predictions. I spoke to one of the experts in this area, a solar expert, and he said, the trouble is, you know how big they are. You can measure the magnetic disturbance, but you don't know what they're going to do when they hit the Earth. And I said, well, what about when they first starts up at the Earth? You know, you can start seeing this happen. And he said, you really don't know within about an hour of the event getting its worst. And so you don't really have time, you know, unless you're just waiting on a hair trigger to do something, you don't really have time to take an action that means much. And there's even debate, like the obvious thing is, well, let's just turn off the power grid for a while, throw the switches, and let's just wait this thing out for a day. But there's some simulations that suggest that even with the grid powered down, it wouldn't make much difference, that the damage would be about the same. You can still damage the transformers and stuff like that. And so it's not entirely clear what should be done. There are some hardening topics that power companies are looking at to try and make their systems more robust. But it's a difficult problem to know how bad it's going to be and then know exactly how to protect yourself from it. In the event of a direct EMP attack, would all vehicles and all electronics be permanently destroyed? Here and maybe my cell phone and your radio that you use for ham radio, other things could also be damaged pretty easily. And those have widespread repercussions, right? Those things can cause us lots and lots of hardships. Will it take everything down? No. I've... I mean, there's no way all pieces of electronics are going to be damaged or all cars are going to be damaged. The best guess is, you know, cars are pretty robust. And the reason they are is they have to survive, let's say, a lightning strike happening down the road. You don't want your car to all of a sudden be damaged because of a lightning strike happened. And so they're fairly robust to electromagnetic disturbances. With that said, there's been some tests and simulations that show that they can be damaged by an EMP. 
How many will be damaged? I don't know. Let's say we throw a number out and say 20%. Let's be nice and say 20% of cars and trucks all over the world or wherever it's affected are damaged. You know, that doesn't sound like a lot because that's 80% still working. But you can imagine if one out of every five cars on the road suddenly stopped working and how much mayhem that would cause. And then all of the damage and the congested roadways and, oh, the fuel pumps aren't working anymore and on and on it goes. You know, a key thing people would have to consider if they were preparing for an EMP, they'd want to make sure their vehicle was hardened as best they could. I talked about that in a number of videos. They'd probably want to protect their personal assets in their home from surges that might come in. A lot of people do that already from lightning. It's a good idea. And then they'd have to think about their other items, you know, emergency items, people have medical devices and other things that they'd want to make sure survive. Most things that are modern electronics could be damaged by an EMP. Just about anything you can think of, not heavy motors or generators, you know, big heavy things have trouble being damaged because it's not a heat-based thing. It's really a very, very brief impulse of energy that causes the damage. And that's usually solid-state semiconductor electronics. We know that the government and the military, and even preppers to a certain degree, have been very aware of EMPs. But how aware is the general public? I would say not very aware. Yeah, the prepper community is pretty up on it. There's a lot of misinformation out there, even in the prepper community. It's usually more towards doomsday than not being aware of it at all. But I think if you stopped a stranger on the street and said, tell me what you know about electromagnetic pulse attacks, uh, I would think most people wouldn't know anything about it at all. Might might go the other direction pretty quick from you. I don't know. So I don't think it's a widespread topic, although it's interesting that at high levels of government, there's a lot of awareness of it. I've been involved in a number of things that where all the way up to the presidency where they're doing executive orders to take a good look at this. You know, there was the big trestle thing built, I think that's back in the 70s, where they were full scale testing EMPs on a giant wooden structure, you know, uh, out in the desert. Um, so there's been widespread knowledge of it in the government, the military but not so much in the population, I think. Dr. Bradley shares a number of ways we can protect our devices in the event of a CME or an EMP. Well, to understand the difference of the threats is important. So again, the CME, you're really only worried about energy coming in off long conductors. So only you can think of your power wires coming into your house as the source of energy. It's not going to come through the air and damage anything in your home. Just the wavelength is way too low. So you have to think about, okay, that one source of energy coming in, how do I protect myself from that? And usually you start with a good surge protector at your at your panel, and there's a number of them I recommend, but I like the Siemens FS140. I'm always out pitching that. It's what's on my house. I think it's a very good product. And then you can do some other things. You can add some ferrites to your main power wires as well. You can come inside the house and you can start, for example, putting sensitive things in shielded enclosures or Especially if you're not using them on a daily basis, you can store them away in shielded bags or shielded Faraday cages. You can also put ferrites on power wires of sensitive electronics. Like let's say my laptop here certainly could have a ferrite on its power cord would help for the transient energy that might come up and cause damage. That Those protections hold true for an EMP as well. Basically watching what comes in on a power line is helpful for an EMP. The difference is that the EMP has all this high frequency energy that can come in too. So that's where those Faraday cages and all those things are important is for the EMP. I didn't mean to mix up the two, but the CME is really not going to, you're not going to need Faraday cages, but the EMP has high frequency energy that can come in directly and maybe damage my laptop, even if it's not plugged in. So if I wanted to protect it, I would have to store it in something that was shielded, like a shielded bag or a shielded Faraday cage. So of the things that sort of you can buy one set of protections or put one set in place for both, which is nice. You protect the power lines at your house, typically with a surge protector and some ferrites. 
and you put ferrites on the power cords around things in your house. And then to add in the EMP protection, you can put in shielded things like shielded bags and Faraday cages, for example, to protect some items there. So those are the general kind of protections. A lot of people also look to protect their vehicles. Now, just to be clear, unless you have an electric car that's plugged in, it's not going to be harmed by a CME, but it could certainly be harmed by an EMP, right? Because that's the energy coming through the air. So if we're talking about a broad protection that protects from both, for a vehicle, you'd want to put on these transient protection devices all around the vehicle. As many places as you can get them, the better the, the more you get them, the better it is. We have a number at disasterprepare.com, places you can connect in these surge protection devices to try and suppress those uh, transient surges from an EMP. And there's not a lot more you can do. I mean, unless you're not driving it, if you're not driving your vehicle, you can cover it with a big conductive cover. You just think like a big blanket made out of with metallic fibers in it. It's very expensive. Those covers are thousands of dollars. Um, so most people don't get them. And again, you can't do it when you're driving. You can't pull them up while you're driving or anything. So it's only for when a vehicle is stored away and it's not being driven for a period of time that you can use those covers. They're very effective at preventing damage, but they're just expensive and not practical for when you're driving them. So transient protection devices, number of different kinds, and then covers over your vehicle. Those are sort of the options for vehicles as well. There's a lot of debate in the prepper community, but does a Faraday cage need to be grounded? It's a fine question, and I understand the reason for it. I did a video on this specifically, but the short answer is no. It does not have to be grounded for an EMP protection. And the reason is, is that you're relying on being in the far field. There's a term called the far field of an EMP which means that it's a wave energy that comes in. And when a wave comes in and hits a conductor, it doesn't matter if it's grounded or not, it will reflect off the metal and it will also get absorbed in the metal, all right? And those are irregardless of if it's grounded. Now, there are many other cases where you want to ground things for safety reasons or for shunting energy to ground, but being in the far field of an EMP, it does not have to be grounded. Dr. Bradley, where can we find more information about CMEs and EMPs? Yeah, so for products, they can go to disasterpreparer.com. There's a bunch of EMP product, protective products on there. For information, there's some information on there, but if they really want to get some more detailed information, they can look for one of my books out there. There's an EMP preparedness book. You can just search Arthur Bradley EMP and it'll pop up on family preparedness that has a whole chapter on EMP protection. But it also covers many other topics like water purification, food storage, you know, on and on the generators and so forth. So if they're just looking for a general book to give them some guidance on protections with with a dedicated chapter on EMP, that would be a good one. It's called The Handbook to Practical Disaster Preparedness for the Family. Those are good sources of information. There's tons of stuff on the web and, you know, 70% of it's right, which is great. The problem is nobody flags it to tell you, well, that's right, but that piece is not right. (laughs) So it's hard to know for sure. We want to thank Dr. Bradley for taking his very valuable time to answer our questions and to be a guest on the podcast. And we hope that you'll search out more information and do some research on your own so that you can be better informed and better prepared. This is the Medical Monday segment for our podcast on January 22nd. And I'm going to discuss the five types of medications that you absolutely must have in your emergency preparedness medical cabinet. And I'm going to save the most important one for last. I want you to stick with me and I want to go through this list, the top five emergency meds that you absolutely must have on hand in the middle of an emergency or a crisis. Number one, pain medications. And I'm talking about acetaminophen, naproxen sodium, regular aspirin, the types of things that are known as an NSAID, or an anti-inflammatory. 
because inflammation is probably the number one source of pain in any of our bodies. And many of us are on some sort of a pain medication for that reason. And so you're going to want to have a ready supply of this type of pain medication. If you're in an emergency situation, you may not be able to get out to a pharmacy to stock up. So go ahead and stock up now while the supply is available and you can afford to purchase them. You can also find that you can purchase larger amounts of pain medication in some of the bulk warehouse clubs. And you may want to find out and ask your doctor or pharmacist if they are okay to keep in the refrigerator, if that will give them a longer shelf life. Because inflammation is going to be something that you're going to be dealing with. And if you're in a crisis or a medical emergency or a long-term prep emergency, you're going to want to know that you can manage your pain. So number one on the list, pain medications, and particularly those that are anti-inflammatory. Okay, number two on the list, medications to curb diarrhea. Yeah, that's a good old dehydrating situation that can happen. You can have a diarrhea even if you're not sick. Some people have it if they drink too much fluid, or some people have it if they actually overeat. But diarrhea is one of the fastest ways to dehydrate, and you know that dehydration is no so good and can be a very critical situation. Dehydration will put you in the hospital. Uh, My mother suffered with dehydration. Uh, She was sort of self-inflicted. She would not drink her water or juices like she should have, and her dehydration became quite serious at her advanced age, and three times that I know of took her to the hospital in an ambulance simple dehydration. Once she got there and they gave her fluids, she was right as rain. She was fine. So if diarrhea might be a risk for you, you're going to want to have the types that you can take by pill form, which would be like Imodium, which is known as loperamide. You're also going to want the liquids and the capsules like the Pepto-Bismol. Also, Maalox and Kaopectate are also medications that you can purchase over the counter to curb diarrhea and also address a number of gastrointestinal issues. Sometimes it can just be nausea or an upset stomach, maybe just too much acid. But those types of things don't get any better if you're in an emergency because your nerves and your psyche can get worked up and that always has an effect on my gut. You may be the same way. If I'm terribly upset, or if I'm dealing with something in a crisis, sometimes my gut is the first thing to go. So I want to have my Imodium, and I will tell you that I love Imodium. It works for me great, and I think it can work for you as well. So that's number two on the list, anti-diarrheal medicines. Okay, number three, either a choice of isopropyl alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. I'm just going to tell you, I'm going to put them in one line, and I want to have both of those things. Those are topical skin treatments. And that is great for punctures, scrapes, lacerations, any type of a cut on the skin where there's been some bleeding, because you're going to want to get cuts and scrapes sanitized as quickly as possible. You do not want to set yourself up for an infection. And particularly, if you are immunocompromised, a simple infection can be far more serious for you. Your doctor will tell you that this can run rampant in your body. And if you can clean a wound quick, fast, and in a hurry, That's what you're going to want to do. Let me tell you something else. Hydrogen peroxide itself is a fantastic germ killer and cleaner. 
you can actually spray it on your kitchen counters, bathrooms, anywhere that you would use Clorox bleach, use hydrogen peroxide. Here's a little fun fact. That's what your clinics and your doctors use. You ever notice when you go to the doctor, you don't smell bleach? That's because they use hydrogen peroxide products to clean and sanitize surfaces in their offices. And you can do that very same thing at home. So killing a bad germ, always a good thing. So that's number three on the list is isopropyl alcohol and hydrogen peroxide. Have some of those in your emergency preparedness medical cabinet. All right, coming up to number four, antibiotic ointment or cream. Something that's going to apply to the skin and last quite a bit longer under a bandage. Some folks think if you just change a bandage and just wash with antibacterial wash that you're doing as much good. But as a matter of fact, that can actually set you up to more of a bacterial exposure, which can be bad. If you'll just put some antibiotic ointment, and they go by various brand names, bacitracin, neosporin, triple antibiotic, there's all sorts of generic. You can find those in most grocery drug aisles or drugstores. Use those types of things to treat a wound under a bandage because it will stick with the germ killing on a longer pace. So a little bit of medicine goes a long way. So number four on the list, antibiotic ointment. Okay, save the best one for last. The most important med you can have in your emergency medical cabinet is any prescription that you are on personally. Makes sense, right? You're going to want to have an emergency supply of your own medications. Don't assume that you can, A, always get to a drugstore, B, that your medicine will always be in stock, and C, that you can get that medicine anytime you want it. A lot of things can happen. Like here in Alabama last week, there were closed roads and pharmacies that did not open. Well, you know, people were actually driving to other counties to try to get their prescriptions filled because they didn't have an emergency stash. So here's what you do. Talk to your doctor. He or she will be very open to your concerns. And you can tell them truthfully and straight up, listen, I am very concerned about the amount of medicine that I want to keep on hand. And I would like to have more than a 30-day supply. And find out if your insurance company will cover that. And if your doctor can perhaps write you a larger dose that you can split. For example, if you need to take 25 mg of a pill and your doctor can write it for 50 and then you can just break them in half, a lot of people can save money doing it that way. So think about that with your doctor and find out if that might be a plan that will work for you. Because last thing you need to be concerned about is that you have a prescription that you absolutely have to have and then suddenly you don't have it. That's probably the scariest of all. I could probably live without the other four, but that one, the blood pressure medicine that I have to be on, I want to keep a 90-day supply, and I usually do. Now, let me give you a bonus tip that I learned just today. Some of you have to have a medication that has to stay cool or refrigerated. But let's just say that you're in an emergency crisis situation where your power has gone out, your refrigerator is now starting to warm, it's been a couple of days, and you're really concerned that your refrigerated medicine is not going to stay cool. Here's a quick tip. You can put your medicine in a Ziploc bag, secure it, and then open up the back tank of your toilet and put that Ziploc bag down in that tank water protected by that Ziploc bag and leave it in that water. The toilet tank water 
is going to stay cooler than most other room temperature water and for a longer period of time because it sits in a beautiful porcelain type of container, which is automatically cooler to the touch. It might buy you a few more days. Hey, listen, it's better than nothing. And we're talking about emergency crisis situations. Sometimes you got to think outside the box, right? Let me just quickly review the top five meds that you have to have in your emergency stash. Okay, number one, pain medications. Number two, anti-diarrheal medications. Number three, isopropyl alcohol or hydrogen peroxide. Number four, antibiotic ointment. And number five, and most important, your own prescriptions. Oh, and here's another thing. If it's at all possible that you can have your prescription in pill form and you have no trouble taking pills, have your doctor write your medicine for pills rather than liquids, simply because they're more shelf-stable. Now, I understand that some of you cannot swallow a pill as easily. I get it. Get your medicine in liquid form. It's better to have it. Even if it's not as shelf-stable, it's better to still have an emergency supply than nothing at all. But again, if you can take a pill, get it in pill form, it buys you a lot more time And that is a practical prepping tip for you. Thanks for listening to this segment of Medical Monday. Today's cup of coffee comes from Diana. Diana, we really do appreciate it. We really do. We enjoyed that coffee today. And if you receive value from the podcast, would you help us by giving back a little? First, you can buy us a cup of coffee like Diana did. And second, you can start your Amazon shopping from our website. That costs you nothing extra, but it pays us a small commission on qualifying purchases, and you'll find the links to both of these at practicalprepping.info. Both of them help us out, and we really appreciate it. And as I always say, stuff happens. Stay prepared. And we'll see you next time.